This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Yes, we are joined by one of our first UK correspondents, I could say, and his name is Pete Matthew. So, Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So Pete is a chartered financial planner. He is managing director of Jackson's Wealth Management and also founder of Meaningful Money, which is a financial education platform. And he's a titan in the podcast industry over in the UK. So very privileged to have him on the show. Thanks for your time, Pete. No worries. That was very kind. (laughs) Got a lot to to live up to now. Yeah, no pressure. (laughs) So before we get into, I guess, the meat of the interview and discuss your personal journey and all things personal finance, we like to start with a game called Overrated, Underrated. We'll throw a few uh, investing ideas or indexes or themes at you and get your opinion on if you think they're overrated or underrated and perhaps why. You want to join? Yeah, bring it on. Let's do it. So to kick it off, overrated or underrated diversification? Underrated. I think probably recently it's worked against investors very often to be too diversified. It's basically been the US market and here in the UK, gilts really, government bonds. So you know, that's not diversification. (laughs) You know, if you just hold those two things, I have a feeling as we move forward, diversification will regain its place as being really important to investors. So underrated, definitely. So Pete, you're based in the UK. So overrated or underrated, the FTSE 100 index? Overrated. Absolutely terrible representation of the UK stock market. Most of the uh, FTSE 100 companies are sort of multi- national global corporations. So the all share, FTSE all share is a much better representation. So Mm. FTSE 100, definitely overrated. Does that sentiment move towards the NASDAQ 100, overrated or underrated? Probably overrated. I understand why though. It's, uh, you know, been like the main story on it for a long time, but um, overrated, but not all that. So Pete, a big topic in our sort of equity mates community at the moment has been on leverage. We did a live show a little while ago and a couple of our expert panelists spoke about using leverage in your personal portfolio to improve your returns while you're young. So overrated or underrated using leverage in your personal portfolio? I think it's underrated because I think it's misunderstood. I think in the right context, for the right people, and with some careful management of downside, there's a place for leverage for intelligent investors, but probably not for novices. You know, there's a lot of, uh, it maximizes returns and also can amplify losses. So I think it's underrated in, in the sense that we don't understand it. A lot of people don't understand it enough. So definitely worth looking into. Mm. Overrated or underrated the impact of Brexit on the UK economy? By the news, hugely overrated. I think we'll be fine. We are, you know, a top six global economy. So we will be fine. I think the short term will be painful, just like any divorce is painful. (laughs) But it'll be okay, you know. Uh, So I think it's all we've heard about for years now, Mm. but I think it's overrated. Its impact on the economy is overrated, certainly for the long term. We will be fine. 
So, Pete, a big, I guess, theme and a big thing in the UK, it seems, is the FIRE movement, the Financial Independence Retire Early movement. Overrated or underrated FIRE? Underrated. It's gathering pace, but I think it's potentially one of the most important movements in recent times. I think it'll be hugely important in the next 10 years or more could have a massive impact on the financial health of an entire generation if it continues to gather pace. It's underrated at the moment, but I'm watching it with huge interest and excitement. Yeah, looking forward to unpacking that a bit further on in the interview. So to close out the game, overrated or underrated, perhaps the saviour of our Ashes campaign over in the UK, and that is the Australian cricket batsman, Steve Smith. Blah, blah, cricket, blah, blah, <laughs> fielding, no idea what you're talking about. So not my sport. It's ridiculous. That is a fair call. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> what is your sport? Uh, if I have a sport, I was more music than sport. My dad is the least sporty person in the world. So growing up in that family, I didn't have a chance really. But uh, if I have a sport that I enjoy watching, it's the NFL. Oh, wow. Nice. Ren. Yeah, you weren't like, expecting like, that. Like, no, I yeah. was, was not expecting that. <laughs> although although I feel like it's uh, it's growing in Britain. They play a few games a year there every now and then. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I was like 14, 15, there was a, a weekly TV show. I never missed it and, and loved it. And when I was younger than that, I went to St. Louis. So I've always followed the Cardinals. Of course, they're now the Arizona Cardinals. Terrible, terrible team the last two years. But, you know, that's part of the fun, isn't it? There you well, go. There you go. That was that was an unexpected sport, but uh, <laughs> I I think an underrated sport. Mm-hmm. Well, sticking with the personal side of things, Pete, we'd love to start with your investing journey, and if you could perhaps take us back to the time that you made your first investment, and maybe tell us if there's a lesson that sort of has stuck with you from then through to now. Yeah. I've got to kind of ask forgiveness from you guys for this because. My first investment was made after I was a financial professional, right? So I have an extremely boring <laughs> investment journey. In that I've always had access to the sort of whole market. I've pretty much, well, except for the first year and a half of my career, I've been an IFA, so an independent advisor, so I'm able, able to choose funds from pretty much anywhere. I think actually my first ever investment was in the Fidelity Special Situations Fund, which are UK all companies fund, focusing on sort of undervalued slightly unpopular stocks and that that did pretty well but actually that's a very boring first investment actually you know sort of an off-the-shelf managed fund but my first sort of perhaps uh, exposure shall we say to the personal finance world was when I was about 12 or 13 I had a paper round okay right you guys do that obviously in Australia probably not (laughs) anymore (laughs) yeah yeah right so I had uh, there was a corner shop local shop and I did the afternoon paper round and we were paid on a Friday right so every Friday morning my wages all of £3.90 a week were there kept for me but the shopkeeper allowed us to draw from that in advance and I walked past that shop every day on my way to school so what I would do is I would begin sort of subbing taking a sub from my Friday wages from Monday through Thursday. So then when I got to Friday, there was nothing left. And of course, these days we call those payday loans, right? And, you know, the sort of things that you see on TV adverts, certainly we do here, daytime TV adverts, you know, borrow 500 quid until your next payday. You know, the annual percentage rate is very often in four figures because they're meant to be very short-term loans. But that sort of thing is a spiral into terrible debt. And essentially that's what it was. You know, my boss allowed me to spend my money before I'd fully earned it. And that's just a terrible financial lesson to learn. And I mean, I don't blame the guy for God's sake, you know, as I was a child and, you know, he was an idiot, but there's a lot more um, 
sort of potent financial lessons that I learned in my childhood, mostly from my family. But you know what? That was, I think, looking back on it now, I thought that was actually a terrible financial lesson. So not an investment, but an important part of my financial journey, actually. So have you managed to pay back the news agent or are you still <laughs> delivering papers for it? <laughs> Yes, with compound interest, I now own six million. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's all right. I'm clear, clear, man. Debt free except for the mortgage. I'm nearly there with that. <laughs> nice one. Well, that's good. So you host a platform, a financial education uh, platform, Meaningful Money, which uh, started as video and is now into podcasting. As Bryce said before, you're a titan of the UK financial podcasting space. So can you tell us the story of how you got into it and what the journey's been? Yeah, man. Titan. That means I need to lose some weight, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I started Meaningful Money in, um, well, I posted my first video in early 2010 and it was around about now, 10 years ago, the back end of 2009, that I was thinking about doing it. I, I tend to say that there were three reasons that gave me the push, really. Firstly, there was some legislation coming in. It was really still being consulted on, but it was an inevitability here in the UK, which abolished all commission on investments and pensions, right, for advisors. So whereas that was the classic way that advisors got paid and banks and, and insurance companies got paid on commission, that was being banned and that eventually came in from the start of 2013. Now, I think that is a universally good thing, no doubt. But what it did is it meant that the entire UK financial advice world changed radically. And I could see that coming. And I knew that it would disenfranchise a whole load of people from getting anything like good advice, getting any advice at all, actually. Because, you know, if you're starting out with investing, you're not going to have a thousand quid to pay an advisor, right? So that I knew was going to be an issue. And I kind of wanted to do something about that and do something other than just help my own clients who are pretty wealthy anyway, just help them get richer. You know, I kind of wanted to do a bit more than that with my career and my life. So I wanted to just get some decent information out there. The second thing that happened was I had a lot of people in different areas of my life at home, in my work as an advisor, the church that I was a part of, people just told me that I was good at explaining things in a way that people could understand and take action on. So that kind of sunk in. I thought, well, you know, maybe I am, maybe I need to do something with this. And then thirdly, I read Gary Vaynerchuk's first book called Crush It. And he, of course, this Russian immigrant to New York, textbook American Dream Story, helped his dad's wine sort of uh, shop, his liquor store, become this massive $65 million a year business. And he began that, uh, or a large part of his success was uh, he started doing online video. And his premise of the book is just, look, if your message is good, if it's interesting, and if it's useful and actionable, people will show up and you will build a community. And that's what made me, That's what that was the sort of trigger, really, the thing that really got me going. So I bought a little flip video camera for about £100 and took it down onto the prom in Penzance and started shooting videos and just said, look, I'm going to explain how money works from you know debt elimination all the way to how to save and how to invest for the future. And it's become this beast. So I started with videos, shot nearly 300 videos, and then I began falling in love with podcasting as a medium, became a listener, and mostly to people like Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income, Michael Hyatt, became just a consumer of podcasts and thought, this is the medium for me. So I switched in 2012, and now it's three and a half million downloads and, you know, 100,000 downloads a month, and it's just going nuts, and it's become this monster that's completely taken over my life. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great, though. Love it. So... You're obviously doing that as well as being managing director of Jackson's Wealth Management. Yeah, uh, entirely by accident. 
the meaningful money has become this incredible lead generation engine. I never anticipated that would be the case. These days we call it content marketing, right? But that phrase hadn't even been coined, I don't think, in 2009. So it turns out by getting behind the mic every week, sharing content, useful stuff to help people help themselves, a reasonable proportion of the listeners now get in touch with me and say, actually, we would like to engage you as our professional financial planner. So much so that, you know, Meaningful Money is now about two thirds of all new inquiries to Jackson's come online. Wow. Most of my clients are nowhere near Cornwall, which is where we're based, which is right at the bottom, southwest wow. tip of the country. So it's become, there's a whole lot of sort of side effects that I never expected. So essentially, I now do four days a week running Jackson's and helping my clients. I've got a team that helps me with that. And then one day a week is Meaningful Money Day on a Friday, which is awesome because it's like my weekend starts early. I get to play with my toys. <laughs> well, hopefully you've got an awesome referral system set up between you and Jackson's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you think, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, how would you describe your investing philosophy, I guess, or your philosophy towards financial management? Yeah, good question. Big question, really. But I think when it comes to investing, I am an inherently lazy person. I sometimes get called the busiest man in personal finance here in the UK. I think that's rubbish. Everybody's busy. But, you know, what I really don't like being busy on is managing investments that it just doesn't interest me particularly. There's loads of stuff I'd rather be doing. And so, I sort of wanted to, and what I, what I preach on the show really is a very hands-off method of investing. That's not to say that there isn't a place for more active investment, if that's an interest of yours, you know, by all means, but it really isn't of mine, ironically. So I tend to preach passive multi-asset investing. So it's two parts to that. Of course, passive means we're tracking markets rather than choosing individual stocks. So all my clients here, they have passive portfolios. Multi-asset simply means really diversified across different kinds of assets and across different geographical locations. Way too many investors are over exposed to their home market. Okay, The UK market is something like 6% of global stock markets by value. So for a UK investor to have 50, 60, 70, even 100% of their investments in the UK is missing out on a whole lot of value. So tracking markets keeps costs down. It removes the chances of picking the wrong manager. And, you know, and I, I happen to think that most people probably are better off not choosing their own stocks. It is a, it's certainly possible, but it's not something that interests me and it's not something that I personally want to get involved in. So for my clients here at Jackson's and for my sort of pulpit here on Meaningful Money, if you like, I, I tend to preach the lazy person's approach to investing, passive multi-asset stuff. Make sense? Definitely makes sense. Absolutely. Now, Pete, before Bryce runs out and starts buying heaps more Bitcoin, can we just unpack? <laughs> can can we unpack the idea of multi-asset? Are there any assets that you consider, you know, must be included, in, and are there any assets that you consider sort of outside the scope of this passive multi-asset investment philosophy? Yeah, so bear in mind, I'm a regulated financial advisor, okay? So I, I have to be careful. I'm not so much on your show, but on mine, I have to be very careful what I say. So, and certainly, you know, what I recommend to my clients. So I would never recommend anything which didn't have an element of protection from the UK government's compensation scheme. So that means we're excluding crypto, right? We're excluding quite a lot of niche assets. You know, I'm trying to think of an example now, but um, we have things here called mini bonds, which are basically uh, super high interest, just about one step short of a Ponzi scheme. I think sometimes <laughs> they're not covered. And, you know, there's been quite a lot of scandal here recently with some pretty uh, large of those schemes just going completely going under. 
So, you know, it's very boring, dull advice. So multi-asset, for the most part, at the very least, it shares and bonds, right? Equities and bonds. I know you have been or will be speaking to my friend Andy Hart, another uh, sort of, he's a giant in the, the UK financial planning space, and he's a pure equity zealot. I get that. But then we need to talk about investor behavior. And if you're going to be 100% in equities, it's going to be a hell of a rocky ride. And so what bonds can do, particularly government bonds, they're desperately dull, but they can just uh, mitigate the volatility a little bit. And certainly for novice investors, probably reduce the chances of bad investing behavior. The longer I do my job, fellas, the long, the more I'm convinced that really it isn't markets that destroy wealth, it's investor behavior, selling out at the wrong time, buying the wrong stuff. And, you know, if we can try to nudge people in the right direction by building investments for them where that's less likely, then we're going to do that. And that's kind of what multi-asset does. It's just basic eggs in baskets, isn't it? So diversifying and reducing risk as a result. So, Pete, we reached out to our audience before this interview to get a few questions from them because, you know, they're pretty interested in being able to reach out to a financial planner. And I think this is a good spot to slip one in around building uh, what are the main pillars of a portfolio. You mentioned a lot about bonds there, and I'm just thinking from a millennial point of view where bonds fit compared to, say, exposure to equities. And this question comes in, what would be the main pillars of a portfolio you would establish for a 22-year-old to add to over time? And so sort of where does that fit with bonds and that sort of stuff? In short, it wouldn't. If you're 22, if you're any, you know, sort of identify as a millennial, chances are you're investing over 30 or 40 years, maybe even more. I, I wouldn't bother with bonds. I would be 100% equity, right? I speak to you as a 45-year-old male, right? So yeah. I think actually I'm 100% equities, right? Because I understand how it works. I'm not going to lose a second sleep if there's a 50% drop in the markets. Yeah. I'll keep putting money in. The flip side to that, of course, is that millennials are very often novice investors. They're younger. They're getting started. Millennials have never experienced a true market decline. So... If you're going to go 100% equities, which I think you should, then you need to know that you might experience two, maybe even three years of decline. Uh, it might be half, it could even be more of your portfolio. And as long as you understand that and you commit from day one that you will not sell when that happens. And in fact, when it happens, you will find every single penny you can to pay into your investments while stocks are cheap. If you can understand that, and not just on an intellectual level, but on a deep gut feeling level, then there's no reason to go anywhere near bonds. You might as well just ride the equity wave. It's going to be a, a sort of wobbly wave, certainly not all in one upward direction. But there's no need, really. With those kind of timescales, there's no need to bring bonds into it. Now, as a regulated advisor, I have to sort of measure a client's attitude to risk, which is an incredibly mm. difficult thing to do. Uh, because it's a blend of experience, time scale, sort of general outlook on life and psychology and background, all that sort of stuff. It's an incredibly hard thing to pin down. And yet our regulator insists that we can ask, you know, half a dozen questions or whatever and then have an immediate <laughs> insight into our client's yeah. attitude to risk. It's complete garbage. <laughs> so the longer I do my job, the more I realize that I'm really a coach and sometimes even a sort of psychotherapist, even though I'm by no means qualified to do that, just to try to pull out the little things that, you know, they, they might be saying all the right words, uh, and yet it's my job to think, okay, actually underneath that is a 
sort of low-lying concern about what might happen if their investments go down. And so my job is to teach and to help folks, under, uh, folks understand this stuff. Do you know what? It's really, it really is all about behavior, chaps. So investors need to understand that. They need to know themselves first. The mechanics of investing is universal, but the way we react to it is individual. And so I think we need to be students of ourselves and of behavioral finance, learn the kind of biases that we bring to play when we invest and, um, and understand how this stuff works. It's a, it's a sort of rich seam of information that we can mine for this stuff, but it's, um, it's a lifelong journey knowing yourself. So then excluding bonds, and of course, it's an incredibly tough thing to do what you just explained from an emotional standpoint and sit back and watch your stocks decline for three years. And to your point, we've never really experienced it at at our age. How would you go about thinking about constructing a portfolio of 100% equities if you were sort of in our position? Yeah, great question. So what I would do if I was starting out, I would be finding a... 100% equity, globally weighted portfolio. So you can either build this yourself using just some ETFs or some trackers. You guys have ETFs on your markets over there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. Sorry, (laughs) I'm not sort of suggesting anything there, but I wasn't (laughs) sure, so okay. (laughs) You guys have electricity, right? (laughs) We've got four stocks on our (laughs) stock exchange, so yeah, yeah, let's choose one. Fantastic. And yeah, lots of Bakelite telephones being used to make exactly. trades. Right? So a global portfolio of market trackers. I wouldn't be buying individual stocks. This is my recommendation. Okay. I wouldn't be buying individual stocks. I would be buying markets and I would try to buy them in roughly the relative weight that they are. So the US stock market is what, 56% or something like that of the global stock market by value. So there's clearly that is the economic engine of the world. I don't care whether it's your perception is that the US market is overheated or whatever, but by building a portfolio which roughly reflects global stock market values, what you're buying into is capitalism. You're buying into the system that builds wealth over time. For all its faults, it's the best system that humans have evolved to build wealth over time. So I would start with a broad-based portfolio of tracker funds or even an off-the-shelf funder funds, which kind of does it all for you. What I would be doing as a novice is being really careful of costs, right? So keep, you know, don't buy an expensive managed fund. You can do this for very low cost. Certainly you can here in the UK. Vanguard is obviously a key player in this space, certainly in the US and the UK. And, you know, that you can buy off the shelf for next to nothing. You need to control the things that you can control as an investor, which is costs and tax. So use the right tax wrappers in your jurisdiction to keep tax to a minimum. No point throwing money away on tax unnecessarily. Likewise, there's no point throwing away uh, money on costs. And I would build that as a start. And then when you've got to a figure that you're happy with, it might be 10000 bucks or $50,000 or whatever, then I would start to have fun around the side. And we just call that a core and satellite approach. So I, I'm sure I certainly didn't come up with that phrase. I don't know who did. But so the core investment is a kind of hands off fire and forget portfolio that will carry you for the rest of your life. It will build wealth. Right. But then if you want to have some fun on the side, that is what we call a satellite investment. So that can be anything that can be Bitcoin if you want it to be, you know, perhaps a tilt into a certain uh, sector. Maybe you love technology. I've got about 10% of my pension in 
technology stocks, right? Technology index tracker, actually, rather than individual stocks and things like that. So that's my little satellite holding. It's not the core. I'm not betting my future on it. It's just a satellite around the side for interest, for fun. Maybe you've got a mate who's a fund manager and you want to give him some money to run. Whatever. That's your bit on the side that you have fun with. And that might be individual stocks as well. So do you know what? I reckon that most people can get from cradle to grave without doing anything more than that. It all depends on how much interest you have and how much time you've got to dedicate to it. Yeah, completely agree. So Pete, another theme of questions that came through from our listeners was around the eternal struggle between investing in property and investing in the market. There are a few. One was, can you still invest in the share market while you're paying off your mortgage or should you focus on your mortgage first? And there was another one around, should you be renting and investing in the market or should you be renting or should you be buying your own property? So when you're talking to the people you're advising, especially young people who are sort of confronting this choice head on, what are some of the key things that you advise them to think about to help them make that decision? Yeah, great question. Overarching advice on this is, you know, don't let the sort of wealth building investing tale wag the dog, right? Where you live is home, first of all. Now, we have an obsession in this country with house ownership. I don't think that's entirely helpful all the time. I think probably more people should rent and not necessarily just chase after owning their own home. But you know what, particularly for the millennials, the most mobile generation in history, owning a home is very much putting down roots, right? And it might be that you just think, well, I'll do that in due course. (laughs) Right now, I'm going to move around with my career, make as much money as I can, see as much of the world as I can. We're in the, you know, the age of digital nomads where you can run a business from the Philippines or from, you know, wherever. So I wouldn't stress about owning a home as something that you sort of have to do as an adult. I just think that's garbage, right? So The problem with very often how these questions are worded is that they use the word should. Should I buy a house or should I rent? There is no should to do what the hell you want, right? But as with any financial decision, go into it intentionally. Think through the implications of each option and make a decision, not just on financial terms, but on what you want to do in life, man. Life is way more important than money. Money is there to serve life. So if it serves your needs to be mobile and fluid about where you live, then don't buy a house for crying out loud. That's a nonsense. You need to be able to give three months notice and then up sticks and travel across the world. But if you think, you know what, I love this town. I'm going to build a business here, then buy a house. So your other question, fellas, was, you know, should you invest while you're paying down the mortgage? 100% you should. A mortgage, uh, I believe debt falls into good and bad debt. So debt, which is sort of bad debt would be generally short term, and generally higher interest rates. So we're talking credit cards, personal loans, payday loans. Uh, Those are bad debts. They're generally not good for your personal finances. Good debts are generally where you have lower interest rates and they used to buy things which appreciate in value, like a home. So these days, mortgage rates and interest rates, certainly in the UK, are incredibly cheap. And so it doesn't make a whole load of sense financially to overpay your mortgage, you know, at all costs, and then not invest in you know, what is a fairly healthy stock market at the minute. So I would be, you know, paying down the mortgage, of course, but then I would be investing at the same time. The key to becoming wealthy over time is to make sure you capture any increases in your income or any windfalls that come. So if you get promoted and you get an extra, I don't know, 200 bucks a month coming in, 
you've got to say, right, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to just let my lifestyle increase, go out to eat a couple more times, maybe ramp up my Netflix subscription or whatever, or am I going to put that money to good use? And I would be saying, right, I'm going to enjoy 50 bucks of that extra, the other 150 I'm going to pay against my mortgage, or I'm going to increase my pension savings or whatever. Be intentional. Nobody got wealthy by drifting, right? No Olympic athlete ever fell out of bed and onto the podium. We need to be intentional with what every single decision we make around money, but don't let money itself be the end, you know, the the end game. It's money is there to serve you. So consider your life goals first, then fit the money around that. That was a little bit preachy, wasn't it? (laughs) That was good. (laughs) I think this kind of ties into that. And we've had this question come in a few times over the past couple of years. And it's actually around financial advisors. And the reason I ask this is around having intention with your money, because a lot of people often don't have the, the discipline required to, I guess, stick to a strategy. So the question is really, how do you actually find a good advisor? But more so, why would you really need one? God, I love this question. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've <laughs> <laughs> it's a massive softball, but uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've, um, <laughs> I've spent ten years, despite being a twenty-two year veteran financial advisor, I spent the last ten years on meaningful money, telling people that they don't need to see a financial advisor. So, go for <laughs> oh, it. there you go. <laughs> but because, do you know what? For most people, building wealth and gaining financial security is a question of three very simple steps. One is to spend less than you earn. All right. If you can't get that right, you're on hiding to nothing. Nothing is going to go well for you. (laughs) You're only going to get poorer, get deeper into debt. So spend less than you earn. The second is to insure against disaster. So these are things which are going to derail your financial wealth building. So like dying early, right? That sucks. But obviously you wouldn't be around to build wealth anymore, but maybe you've got family. Maybe you've you've got kids that you want to look after probably for you as an individual, a far bigger issue is what happens if you can never work again? So what happens if you're hit by a car or struck by multiple sclerosis or something like that? These are things which are going to take away your biggest asset, which is your ability to earn an income. So you must insure against disaster. It really is the foundation on which everything else is built. Anybody that begins investing without first putting that foundation in place is building their house on sand, really. One disaster will wash the whole thing away. So spend less than you earn, insure against disaster, and only then can you start building wealth. Invest wisely is, is what I call it. And do you know what? It really isn't rocket science. Use all the tax wrappers you can. Spread your money around, multi-asset, passive stuff that, that I, I tend to talk about. And then commit to regular increases. That is where the magic happens, guys, because... You know, I, I've got people that say, oh, yeah, I've been paying 50 pounds a month into my pension for 20 years. I think, jeepers, 50 quid a month was quite a lot 20 years ago, but now it's you know, half a night out. And so what you should have done is you commit to increase that saving every single month, right? Just ramp it up a little bit or every three months or every six months, just say, right, I'm going to increase it now. And it's those regular increases that make the difference. So if you can do that yourself, why do you need a financial advisor? Most people don't need complex tax planning. They just need to use the basic wrappers that they've got available. Here in the UK, pretty much everybody has a workplace pension. And then we have an ISA, which you can save £20,000 a year into, right? Most people don't get anywhere near that, right? So why do they need anything else? And why do they need an advisor? But let's say you do. 
right? A financial advisor isn't just there to sell you products, right? And arrange an investment for you because you can do that yourself online. We're in the internet age now. You certainly don't need to pay a git like me to do some forms or open an online account for you. There's just no need. So what might you need an advisor for? Well, if you do have complex needs, working with a guy at the the minute, it's about to sell his business for 4 million quid. He's 32, right? This is probably all the money he'll need for the rest of his life. So my job will be helping him make that money last by investing it intelligently. And those are obviously fairly rare circumstances like that. But, you know, maybe there's an inheritance coming and you think this is the first time you've had anything like serious money land on you. Maybe your parents have financial issues and you're now, uh, or maybe they have sort of health issues and you're now power of attorney for them. You're dealing on their behalf. Really, a financial advisor is there to help you navigate the personal finance system whenever it's a little bit more complex than the stuff that we're all able to do. But you know what? The question then was, how do you find a good one, right? I think we need to trust our gut a little bit on this. Firstly, you should have a meeting with a financial advisor. That should be at no cost. And it really is a get to know you session. So what I would do is I would be asking a bunch of questions about how they invest, what their investment strategy is, and how they got and how and why they got into the role that they're in. Ask them about them because they won't be expecting that. They want to talk at you about what they can sell you. And if that is the case, if you go and see a financial advisor and all they're talking about in the first meeting is what products would you would benefit from, you need to run very fast in the opposite direction. A good advisor will take the time to get to know you. I would look for a financial planner rather than a financial advisor because for them, the product is just one of many tools in the box. What they can sell you is just, you know, that's like the very last link in the chain, really. Where they will really add value is in planning, helping you understand what you need to do in what order and to what degree, and then coaching you through it. So I've got clients who I don't manage any money for, but they pay me on a monthly basis like a subscription model, and I will coach them as they do their own investing on their own platform. But that's an unusual model here in the UK. And, you know, I'm, from what I know, it's an unusual sort of across the globe. But I think that's the way it's going. Jeepers, I can talk, can I? Man alive. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. <laughs> Sometimes I bore myself. So, Pete, what you were speaking about there in terms of doing it yourself, were, there were some key tenants there. Yeah. It was saving more than you earn, insuring for disaster, investing what you're saving, and then increasing your savings rate month over month yes. or year over year. It sounds very much like some of the key philosophies of the FIRE movement. They just sort of take those philosophies and really take them to their extreme. You mentioned before that you're a big fan of the FIRE movement. Bryce has shared some thoughts about the FIRE movement and not wanting to eat beans for his 20s and 30s. So I'm interested to know, what are your thoughts on the FIRE movement and why do you think, as you said before, it was underrated? Yeah, I, I think it's underrated because I think the lessons that it teaches will help a lot of people potentially. But, you know, I'm like you... Uh, sorry, was it Bryce that said that, that you don't want to uh, eat beans? Yeah, yeah. Bryce, yeah. I'm not like you. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a version of it called Fat Fire, I think, isn't there, where you actually get to enjoy life a little bit as well. And it's like anything, you, you know, I think it's, if we could take the lessons of the fire movement, which is aggressive savings rate, right, capturing those increases, automating savings, reducing costs into your investing stuff to, to a minimum. If we can do that, to some degree, it will serve us very well. But you don't have to save 50% and live on beans, right? Very often, many of the fire proponents are actually pretty high earners, 
All right. That's certainly a pattern that I've seen. Not all by any means, but some are. It's like, well, you know, I was earning 180,000 pounds a year and I was able to have a 60% savings rate. <laughs> well, of course, of course you bloody were. Right. Okay. Yeah. I can live on 60 grand a year. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And save 100. You know, so that sort of is like, oh, yeah. It's like when you see these things on Instagram. You know, I've paid 900,000 pounds of debt in four weeks. And why? Because I'm a, I'm a bloody hedge fund manager, right? It's no wonder. So, so the first step is to get really, really rich. Yes, exactly. And then fire's like easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like anything, it's picking out the messages, fellas, right? Rather than sort of necessarily going all in on it. There's no way I would want to live like that. Do you know what I really like? Going to the local coffee shop and having a coffee, right? And yet that's like anathema. I'd be kicked out of a fire meeting for walking in with a Costa coffee cup, right? <laughs> sort of Starbucks or something. You spent how much? Didn't you know you could put that into your investment portfolio? It's like, yes, I did know that. And I chose to buy the coffee. Why? Because I really like it and I can afford it. So the key message for me with all aspects of personal finance, fellas, is I keep thinking I'm going to have this tattooed in my forearm, right? Which is to be intentional. So don't drift your way through any area of your life and particularly not with your finances and your investments. Make every decision that you make with careful thought, right? Don't just think, well, it'll be all right. I'll do it because that's what everybody else does. If you're going to buy a coffee, buy it because you like it. Don't buy it because it's a habit, right? Buy it because you like it and you enjoy it and you can afford it. And understand that in doing that, you have not saved that money into your pension or whatever. And understand the implications of that. If you want to drive a car which costs you 500 bucks a month to lease, do that intentionally, right? And enjoy the car while understanding that you'll be working for longer as a result. So if you're intentional and you think through the implications of your decisions, then fill your boots. The problem, if anything, with some of the zealots in this whole thing, they can be a little bit judgy. And that's not my bag at all. I just think if we're intentional, we take the good stuff, the good messages from the fire movement and apply most of them every day. Even if we're working to 60, do you know what? That's all right, because we're all going to live till 90 anyway. So, you know, that, that's okay. Does that, does that make sense? Take the good stuff and be intentional. Yeah, I guess my question with that being intentional and sort of relating it to the fire movement is around, you know, if you take it so seriously and become so intentional with it, you run the risk of, I guess, having blinkers mm. and missing opportunities elsewhere. So how would you sort of think about that? You might be intentional, but is it the right intention over a long period of time? That is a good question, actually. The right intention has to be guided by your own long-term goals, I think. The problem with long-term goals is that they can be quite woolly, right? It's quite hard to be really clear on your long-term goals if we're talking 30 years. Hence, it's inevitably a little bit out of focus at that sort of distance. So, you know, buying a coffee now as opposed to putting that money in my pension, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to retire four minutes later as a result of that <laughs> that individual coffee. But of course, the thing about compounding and inflation is that they happen insidiously over a long time. And so, you know, we all know in an abstract sense that compounding is important. Yeah, it's the eighth wonder of the world, blah, blah, blah. And it is, right? So I suppose when it comes to being intention and making those in-the-moment decisions, you've got to be guided by your own gut, your own long-term plan, but I think I would also just say, look, probably there is no in-the-moment decision which is going to completely make or break your financial future. Yeah. It's a continual learning journey. So I wouldn't 
lose sleep over, you know, should I buy this stock or that one? You know, if you're worried about it, buy them both. Do you know what I mean? And I would generally give ourselves a bit of a break and understand this is such a long-term game that probably what's really going to get us there is the magic of compounding and time, not many of the in-the-moment in decisions, you know, because most of them are just not big enough decisions to make or break it either way. So I guess I would just say chill out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, makes sense to me. One other thing there, Pete, you talk about adding to your pension. And I think one thing that a lot of people in Australia struggle with, we have a superannuation system, which I imagine is similar sure, to the yeah. pension system in the UK. There's often a choice between adding to your pension or your super or adding to your own investments. And for people who plan to work through their whole lives, it's a much easier decision because there's a tax advantage to adding to your pension. But for people who are all in on the fire movement and are convinced they're going to retire when they're, you know, 40 and they're never going to work another day in their life. How should they think about that decision between their own investment portfolio or the tax-advantaged pension system? Yeah, great question. Life happens in stages, right? So you're dead right. So essentially, I tend to preach we only need two kinds of accounts here in the UK. One is your pension, which right now you can't get out until age 55. That will soon be going up to age 57. It's going to be state pension age minus 10 years. So if you want to retire at 40, you've got a long time where you can't access that money. And so what I would be doing is basically doing working out some maths and saying, okay, if I want to retire at 40, firstly, what are my costs? I need to know what my costs are. Um, we need to sort of factor in some level of inflation, obviously, and say, right, if that's 17 years before I can even touch my pensions, then that pot is going to have to last me from 40 to 57, right? And so you, you're just going to need to do the maths and say, right, how much do I need to invest? What kind of growth rate do I need in order to have enough in that pot that I can sort of draw down from from age 40 to 57 and then the pensions are after that. Usually it's not nowhere near that straightforward and you don't want to you know, spend every penny in your ISAs the day before your 57th birthday and then they rule, they change the rules or something and suddenly you can't touch it till age 60. So it's never quite this exact, particularly not if you're looking that far ahead from age 30 or whatever. So there is no question a tax advantaged account is going to make you more money in the long run. But if the quid pro quo for that is that you can't touch it, you're just going to need to factor that in. That is financial planning, right? So it's about doing the maths, understanding the implication of inflation, the benefit of tax, uh, you know, tax relief and tax advantaged accounts and things like that. And just running the numbers and saying, right, how much do I need? And in what part? by when. It's not that complicated maths, actually. It just needs a bit of, uh, you know, an hour with a beer and an Excel spreadsheet and you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> two beers, maybe. Yeah, well, two, yeah. <laughs> not too many, though. The numbers will be off. <laughs> yeah. One other big theme, which has taken Australia by storm and which a couple of listeners have asked us about, is the buy now, pay later sector. It seems to have exploded in Australia. There's a company, Afterpay, that has really been known for it. They've expanded to the UK. And so a few listeners mm. were asking the question, what are you seeing or hearing about the buy now, pay later sector in the UK? Has it taken off in the same way that it has in Australia? Getting that way, I think. You know when you decide to buy a particular model of car and then you see it everywhere, right? You, you know, you suddenly you're seeing every single one in every single color and things like that. This is a bit like that because when I saw you sort of send this question in advance, um, literally the same day I had a, an email from a debt counseling and a debt relief company here in the UK 
who have done surveys into the whole buy now, pay later thing and are seeing the impact on millennials and the, the number of percent, the percentage of people, I don't have those figures in front of me, where it almost becomes a debt gateway, you know, and it, it can become a bit of a spiral and they didn't really understand what they were getting into. So I'm worried about it fellas, if I'm honest, it would definitely qualify to me as bad debt because if you can't afford to buy it now, you probably shouldn't buy it at all, right? Don't use other people's money to buy crap you don't need, right? And so I'm worried about it, but I don't know enough about it yet. I haven't actually had the interview that's happening in two weeks with the lady from um, PayPal, the company that are the, the debt relief company here, but I'm intending to ask her all those questions. So I'm afraid I got to sort of pass on this a little bit, but it just smacks of a sort of shiny new facade on a fairly sort of time-honored way of getting people to, you know, just mess up their financial futures. You know, there is a reason why our parents and our grandparents didn't carry a lot of debt. First reason, of course, is that it wasn't quite so easy to get into it, but they kind of intrinsically understood the dangers of it. And I don't think we do here. And I think we're, we're so suckered by social media advertising lifestyle choices, being Instagram sort of ready that we kind of brush under the carpet the potentially hideous results of a debt spiral. So I would avoid it at all costs from what I know about it at this point. So Pete, we like to close out our interview with uh, three questions that we always ask our guests. So the first one that we'd like to hear is, do you have a must read book that you would recommend either investing related or otherwise? Not specifically investing related, but it will help every single investor. This book is so good. I've committed to read it once a year for the rest of my life. Okay. Wow. So <laughs> Drum roll. This is one of those books. I just, I've read it half a dozen times already. And every time I just think, man, this is amazing. The book is called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Now, Ryan Holiday is the best voice at sort of interpreting the Stoic philosophy, really, I think, for the modern age. His books are incredibly accessible, short chapters, loads of great ex, uh, examples. And Ego is the Enemy is about how really uh, our ego can get us into trouble and how we avoid that, really. You know, a social media world where it's all like, you know, you've got this, you're the boss, and you can do it, all that sort of stuff. I'm down with that to a point, but we also need to understand that actually sometimes we're not all that. And particularly for investing, particularly for men, I have to say, where testosterone is coursing around our bodies as we're making investment decisions, this book is the, a brilliant antidote to it. It is just an absolutely outstanding piece of work. I love it to bits. So Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Every investor should read it. Wow. Committing to read something every year for the rest of your life is a big commitment. So I think so if you're going to read it uh, that many more times, we can all probably read it once at least. Yeah. Read it once. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll call you back in <laughs> 10 years, Pete, and hopefully you can recite it to us by, yeah, by memory. <laughs> so, Pete, the second question we like to ask is, what's your go-to source for financial information? I hate most of the online sources. Uh, so, I suppose the one place I generally would go for financial information is the Financial Times. You know, it's, it's wonderfully unemotional. <laughs> It's sort of, here are the numbers. We're all going to hell in a handcart, but we're fine with it. You know, it's like, there's no sort of, uh, there's not a lot of uh, passion, really. It's just, it's fairly cold. And I like that. The worst thing 
my friend Paul Armson calls um, calls it financial pornography. You know, sort of twenty great stocks to buy in twenty twenty. Six academics predict what's going to happen next year. That's all just garbage. Do you know what will happen? Stock markets will rise over the next fifty years because they always have, right? It'll be wobbly. So just be in stocks and you'll be fine. <laughs> so you know anything which sort of tries to guess what's going to happen, just avoid. I just like the FT because it's like this is how it is. So that's probably the best place. I try to avoid the news as much as possible, actually, because most of it's garbage. So finally, if you were to look back and talk to yourself as you were doing the paper rounds as a young boy, uh, what what sort of uh, advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Man, I would start a lot earlier. You know, I definitely threw a lot of money away. Uh, it's not easy when you're starting out. You know, I got married at like, 22 i was a child bride really you know so <laughs> be married 23 years next year though so you know it's going okay but you know you're building a house then you know yeah i had kids at 25 which is marvelous because i'm going to be shot of them before too long which is <laughs> yeah. um, you know, most people do it the other way around these days but Getting i think i would, wealth with no kids <laughs> <laughs> exactly i think i would just uh, i would say look start earlier start with small amounts even a small amount can compound all right so it would start earlier and commit to regular increases. That really is, the longer I do this, it really is the magic. Starting at 50 pounds a month, then committing in three months to make it 55 or 60. Then three months after that to make it 75. And just continue those increases until it gets painful and then maybe hold for a bit because before long it won't be painful. You'll get used to it going out. And before you know it, the numbers get pretty exciting. So start early commit to regular increases and don't buy so much chocolate. In fact, yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, thank you for your time today on the show. Much appreciated. I think you've certainly spelled out some very clear, simple strategies that we can all follow regardless of our, I guess, level of investing knowledge to start building that long-term wealth. So very important. And I'm sure our listeners have taken a lot out of this interview as I'm sure Ren has as well, because I, I certainly have. So Big thanks from me and Ren and the rest of the community for, for joining us tonight. No worries, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Keep doing what you're doing. It's uh, important to get as much of this good information out to the world as possible. I just think it's so exciting that we live in the world that, you know, I can talk to you in Australia, I'm here in the UK, and we can help people do this incredible medium. So thank you for having me. Keep doing what you're doing. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work.